Welcome back to Writers on Writing. I'm your host, Marie Stone. Today, I'm joined by Dwyer Murphy to talk about his debut crime novel, An Honest Living, out and available on July 26th and published by Viking. Dwyer is the editor-in-chief of Crime Reads, Literary Hub's crime fiction vertical and one of the most popular destinations for thriller readers. He's also a former litigator. Today, we'll chat about that, as well as Dwyer's insights into creating effective crime fiction and how to maintain the balance between suspense and frustration of the reader creating a strong sense of time and place in novels, working with unreliable characters, and how much surprise crime writers allow themselves as writers, and so much more. Before I bring him on, a quick reminder that we're now offering some great perks on Patreon. We started the page to keep in better touch with you and get your feedback, as well as offer some fun writing tips and tricks. You can see all the benefits by visiting www.patreon.com backslash writers on writing. Any level of support helps if the show has boosted your writing in some way, if you've gotten some useful advice. This is an easy way to reach out. We appreciate it all. On with the show. Dwyer Murphy, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. This is a real treat. And uh, as you ran down the topics that we're going to be discussing, I'm, I'm, I'm already chomping at the bit. I think the old litigator in me loves a, loves a good outline. So thank you for having me. <laughs> Thanks for coming on. Well, speaking of a, an old litigator, we were talking about as a former lawyer myself and, and someone who talks to a fair number of lawyer turned writers, I would love to hear about that transition and getting, you know, getting into the law, getting out of it what it gives you writing, what maybe you had to overcome to relearn to, uh, to write fiction. Take us into it with that story. Well, I always immediately, when I talk about my legal career, I sort of, I feel like I immediately wonder how much to disclose because, you know, we have all these strange archaic rules around the legal profession and all of my secrets are, you know, 20 years old and nobody could possibly care about, but I have that instinctive sort of like little red light that goes off with me still, but my legal career was, it was a seamless transition in some respects to a literary life because I think I probably realized while I was still in law school that I had never actually really wanted to be a lawyer. I kind of wanted to be a lawyer character in a, in a John Grisham novel or something and that I had been seduced like many others by the crime fiction and the, the sort of Scott Turo novel or something and believing that that was going to be my life as a lawyer and probably took about a year to law school where I realized I'd made a, a grave mistake, but had already accumulated too much debt to <laughs> escape just then. And in a lot of respects, I actually, you know, the law, the law suited me. I had a pretty good aptitude for it. And I've always had kind of a competitive spirit. So becoming a litigator was pretty natural. It felt a little like, you know, a chance to be a, a learned jock a little later in life. Although the law firm I worked in New York was very competitive in the the New York Lawyers League basketball tournament, which ended every year in Madison uh-huh. Square Garden. And it was a it was basically the litigation team was completely <laughs> formed the <laughs> basketball unit. There was a, a tight overlap between the ex-jocks and the litigators, I think. Uh, so it was, you know, it was a nice profession for a while, but I'd always had in the back of my head that I I wanted to do something literary. In fact, I chose the firm where I went to work, uh, which was called Debevoise and Plimpton. I chose it largely because the Plimpton in that formulation was the father of George Plimpton, the sort of man of mid-century letters in New York who 
ran the Paris Review and through famous parties. And I thought maybe I'll get a little closer to the literary life if I go to work for his father's firm. And actually the firm had a, a nice tradition of writer lawyers there. One of the partners at the firm was Lewis Begley who had written a series of kind of celebrated novels and is still a writer today and retired from the law. But there were other kind of writers and aspiring writers and artists puttering around massive corporate law firm in the middle of midtown Manhattan. And I think that often the associates gave each other a bit of side eye wondering who was going to jump over first and make a go of it. And so uh, actually <laughs> my wife who was working there as well at the time. And I think we, we probably, I don't know if we left around the same time, but it was a long, it was a long time coming and we had to do it in kind of dramatic fashion. So we actually packed a couple of suitcases, uh, packed up our entire apartment in New York, went into the firm one day when it was our decided last day of work. And we went straight from this law firm in midtown Manhattan out to JFK airport and we moved to Paris and uh, sort of became a, a cliche of, uh, you know, struggling Americans wanting to make a go of an artistic life in Paris. And we did that for quite a while and then eventually came back to New York. And I, I'd had a sort of stroke of good luck and got a generous fellowship at a place called the Center Fiction in New York then, and came back to kind of begin my writing career. That's crazy. I only read about in, in books and movies of, yeah, quitting your job and moving to Paris. That's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people that I talk to want a career in words, but they can't afford a career in writing, you know, writing fiction. And so the law seems like, well, it's it's word adjacent, right? I'll be around literary smart folks. And I, I, I don't know how it all happens. No, I think that's a that's a, an astute observation. That's probably a lot of us, right, that we we like to write and the truth is as a lawyer, you do a lot of writing and you're, you know, you're working on briefs all day and there is a real satisfaction and a craft to it. I think that you can dedicate yourself to and find satisfaction in. And, you know, some of us want to go on to make up things also and uh, write crazy wild stories, but there, there is that craft to it that it's, there's a, there's a strong affinity, I think. I knew I was in trouble the first, like, I don't know, the first week on the job, I was a corporate lawyer. And I was working on some contract and the partner said, it's not a creative writing assignment, Marie. And I was like, uh-oh. It's a pretty good education in writing too, though, I think, right? Because I, it is, I yeah. law firms, uh, partners or whoever, I, I clerked for in a federal court as well. So I worked for a judge for a while. And, but I think partners, judges, these people are incredibly harsh uh, judges of your writing. And you know, you're being well compensated to do it. So they have no mercy in criticizing you. And I, I do... I, still remember sort of turning in my first brief. I think it was a, for a summary judgment and just sitting across from a partner who kind of, he looked like, uh, you know, like Ben Bradley character and all the president's men kind of kicked his feet up on the desk, took out his red pen and just completely savaged my every ounce of existence. <laughs> it was, you know, a belittling and kind of crushing experience. But if you're a competitive person, you you want to rise to the challenge and you're just going to go back and work around the clock and make those briefs good and learn how to do it. Now, it might not be the same kind of writing you want to be doing, you know, creative writing or writing a novel, but it forces you to think about the, you know, to think about how to make arguments persuasively, how to convince somebody of something and how to say what you want to clearly, which I think is probably the biggest part of it, right? That that is something that we bring to fiction as well is you, know, you have something you want to say and it may be 
obfuscation and you know obscuring what you actually want to say but you learn how to get your points across clearly and then later on you can be it all up and make it as ambiguous and confusing as you like if you want to write a crime novel or a mystery but first you got to learn how to write clearly oh so true and i think that was one of the things that was a little hard to unlearn was to embellish with not flowery language, but, you know, description and all of that, which is required in fiction to (laughs) set a mood. And uh, there was none of that. But suddenly occurring to me is where I've never made this connection before, but I, I I do think, right, that Dashiell Hammett, sort of the the godfather of crime fiction or modern American crime fiction, let's say, was, you know, a detective before and in large part his earth style. And I think it kept throughout his crime fiction his style is very reminiscent of a report that an investigator might submit to a lawyer or, you know, a client or whatever, whatever you're, whoever happens to have hired him or her. But it takes that base style and then spins it off into the sort of fabulous and fantastic places and brings this incredible imaginative energy to it. But there is always that undercurrent of no matter how wild the events or profound the emotions on the page he brings it back to that style always and I think that maybe a lot of lawyers are drawn to crime fiction bring some of that same style that there is a a thread or a through line running through the stylistic return to something that purports to be to be just delivering the facts and then you can muddy the facts and confuse them as much as you like but you always kind of return to that style you're right So let's get into this book. An Honest Living is coming out as the podcast comes out. It'll be coming out in the next week. So talk a little bit about, well, first take us into the novel. We'll start there, kind of set the stage for us. And then uh, I've got a thousand questions for you. Well, it's set in sort of the mid to late aughts of Brooklyn, uh, Brooklyn, New York, I guess, let's say the city generally in New York. And it's about a washed up corporate lawyer who is living in Brooklyn, kind of making ends meet, working any job he can to piece together a living. And he is thrown into a fairly strange mystery involving the antiquarian book trade in New York City and a lot of novelists and booksellers and librarians running around trying to solve history. And they slowly start to suspect that they have kind of allowed uh, the movie Chinatown and a crime fiction to seep into their everyday lives and take over some piece of their reality. And it's about this lawyer and a novelist named Anna Reddick and a Venezuelan poet named Ulysses Lima trying to find their way out of this mystery. And uh, I'd like to think it's a coming of age story a little bit late in, later in life. They're all in their late 20s, but they're kind of disillusioned with their various careers. And they do a lot of walking around New York and going to the movies and trying to solve small mysteries in the midst of this larger mystery that seems to be swirling around them. Tell me about the point of entry for you. Did it start with this narrator character who, um, I don't know, could have a few little shades of, of your background or was it the mystery itself? Tell me a little bit of the attraction for you as writer to take you into it. Yeah, so it began, I think, organically, I would say, in that I had been spending a few years trying to write what I thought of as very serious, earnest, uh, melodramatic literary novels. I think I had in my mind that I was going to, I was still kind of aspiring to be like John Cheever or something. And I had been really struggling with it and not having much what I considered success in it. I just, I, it wasn't suiting me. And around that time, as I said before, I was working every day 
in a place called the Center for Fiction in New York City, which was also be priorly the Mercantile Library. It was a private library that had been started in the 19th century by a lot of midtown clerks who during their lunch hours wanted somewhere to go to read to kind of better themselves. But they also had a strong affinity for commercial or crime fiction. And so over the many decades, this incredible seven or eight story townhouse in the middle of the Diamond District, uh, what later became the Diamond District in Midtown Manhattan, this beautiful old building assembled one of the great crime fiction libraries uh, in the world. And I was working there every day in a little office space that I had shared with some others. And I was kind of struggling with what kind of novel I wanted to write. I gave myself a break one day and just wandered on the stacks and thought I'm going to read something for pleasure, purely for pleasure, which, you know, as a an aspiring writer, you're sometimes reading solely to, to get something out of another novel, to learn something or you know, aspire to something else. And I pulled out Walter Mosley's Devil in a Blue Dress and just started reading an armchair. And I think seven or eight hours went by and I realized I was still sitting there and I hadn't done anything all day, <laughs> but allowed myself to be captivated by this incredible novel. And that kind of opened my eyes. And I realized that I, you know, I had this affinity for crime fiction that I'd kind of forgotten about. And then a little later on, I was at home in Brooklyn and my wife was pregnant and it was, it's our first child. And we were both a little nervous, I think about it or anxious. And I wasn't sleeping very well. And something I do when I'm not sleeping well is I tend to go back and watch the same old movies over and over and over. And that helps me somehow, or at least it convinces me that, you know, I'm helped in some way. And around that time I was watching Chinatown if not every night, often just in sort of spurts, you know, in little pieces of it. And I would just turn it on to kind of relax my nerves at the end of the night. And then I'd go into bed. And if my wife was still awake, because she often was as well, probably reading in bed, dealing with her own worries. We talk through Chinatown because we were both, I was a former lawyer at that point. She's still a practicing lawyer. We would do this strange exercise where we'd talk about different lawsuits that the characters might bring against one another. <laughs> uh, I've always had interest in these particular types of old civil suits, torts that were called heartbalm actions. It's this really, you know, I think that the real history of heartbalm actions, I suspect, is about <laughs> maintaining the patriarchy and probably endorsing domestic abuse in some regards and like all these horrible notions that worked their way in through the common law and allowed men to kind of rule over the domestic realm. But that's not exclusively their history, but I, I, I've come to suspect that's a large part of it. But there's also this kind of deeply poetic strand and just the abstract concepts of these torts that actually developed alienation of affections and all these strange things that you could sort of suits that a man or a woman or anybody could bring against you know, a jilted lover suit, essentially something to, to sue the person who had left them or the person who had interfered in their marriage, you know, uh, and we, they're most of them are defunct fortunately they're not around anymore <laughs> but my wife and I would kind of talk through some of these old bizarre common law claims that these uh, characters could have brought against one another and in doing that I sort of walked around New York finding that this fiction Chinatown and these characters Jake Giddies and Evelyn Mulray were sort of seeping into my everyday life and taking over my consciousness a little bit. So I just started writing. I started writing a detective novel, essentially with a washed out corporate lawyer in much the same situation I had been in Brooklyn, 
who through a series of you know clients and double crosses finds himself locked in a mystery that starts to resemble Chinatown and then kind of finds his way out of it. So this narrator, who I think is never named, right? We don't know. It. Is that true? Yeah, there, he's, he's technically unnamed. It's a name that's very close to mine. You can sort of intuit, I guess. He shares a lot of my, my background and I always kind of loved and wanted to make fun of a little of that tradition of writers sort of naming characters after themselves and blurring the lines between reality and uh, fiction and having a little fun with that. So that, yes, technically an unnamed narrator. Yeah. And I was wondering if you were conceiving of him as a character, uh, because this is your debut of, of a character who could, you know, we could see again, or, you know, he could be a recurring character. Yeah, that's the plan, actually. I think down the line, there is another book in the series planned. Hopefully there'll be more to come, but the follow-up will see many of the same characters traveling to Miami and kind of working their way through an Elmore Leonard homage. So that'll be, that'll be to come. Yes. I, I had not imagined it as a series, but I, you know, I think something that I've always loved in fiction, whether it's a novel or a TV series is the type of fiction that creates people you just kind of want to spend some time with and uh, maybe come back to and enjoy. They might not be the best people or always do the best things, but they're interesting hopefully and the, you know the atmosphere is hopefully interesting too so I found myself coming back to these characters and wanting to spend a little bit more time with them so yeah it's I, I think we're on our way to a series is the idea of course you would want to spend more time with these people so let's let's talk a little bit about you getting to know them it sounds like you might know our our narrator perhaps better than I realized but you know when I'm thinking about conceiving something for a series you kind of have to think, you know, three steps ahead of yourself when you're creating their backstory, what's going to serve you in the future, what you might be constrained by. So I would love to just hear how you got to know this guy and what quirks, what motivates him, what makes him tick, and maybe some of the things that perhaps got in your way, that something about him. I always think that there's kind of a secret that writers know about their characters that maybe, maybe not makes it onto the page. But anyway, you know, the the process of discovery, especially people that you're going to be sticking around with for several, hopefully, novels. I'd just love to hear about how you got to know them. I love to sort of, you know, hear writers talk about that thing too. So I, obviously, it's a little complicated in that I gave the the narrator of this novel many of my own background details and he's sort of, uh, you know, uh, maybe a cousin of mine or something. And uh, I think one of the big challenges was finding where his and my personalities diverged, you know, rather than just slapping all of my own feelings onto the page. And so it was a matter of distinguishing how he might act from how I might act and what that might mean. In general, I would say that probably he is, I think, in good crime novel tradition, pretty cynical and, uh, you know, world weary and somewhat reluctantly competent. I would say that I'm probably a little bit more cynical about the law than he is. I have a slightly more jaundiced version of all of that, but that he allows himself maybe to be a little bit more game. I think that's something that probably a lot of writers find they have to do with narratives, whether they've given them some of their own characteristics or not. You know, you're channeling somebody and many of us are sitting around our desks all day and probably not going off and having grand adventures or allowing ourselves to be dragged into bizarre mysteries. So I had to kind of create a version of this washed out corporate lawyer who might 
be a little less risk averse and a little bit more willing to just go with the night and kind of see where it takes him. Because that's also one of the great beauties and charms of being in New York and certain cities like New York, I think, where it's really about you can be out on a given evening, walk through a hundred different neighborhoods, interact with a hundred different people or more. And if you are willing and open yourself up to the world, you can get dragged into some really bizarre situations. Now, I personally probably have enough, you know, like alarm bells that go off inside my head and I kind of conduct myself in a reasonably safe fashion that I don't always <laughs> I probably avoid most of those pitfalls and mean streets. But I wanted a narrator who was a little bit more open to the world and allowed himself to kind of chase those mysteries where they might take him, which really involved in large part, just being out in the city, you know, and New York is where I spent all of my twenties, most of my thirties. And I love just walking around that city. And so it was easy in that sense, I think, to build a plausible mystery out of just getting out on the streets and walking around and see what might happen. And hopefully there are these kind of moments of serendipity along the way coincidences, uh, non-coincidences, you know, there's the neighborhood of people who are around them. And where I lived in Brooklyn, people still sat out on their stoops every evening in the summer. And there's this real life to the city. So if you're willing to just go out and walk around in my narrator, often, you know, some of my past life too, you can pour yourself a drink in a coffee cup, nobody will bother you and maybe smoke a joint and walk around the city a little bit and see what happens. And sure enough, you probably will get tangled up in a mystery if you do that enough times. So this was kind of the story of a disillusioned lawyer who liked to get out into the city on a summer night and see what might happen. So I think that once I kind of found that formula, it seemed easy enough to kind of have him be in a position where he would be, be brought on to a lot of different strange cases. And I think uh, in that sense, it's really this kind of washed out lawyer who's doing small jobs and, you know, personal matters is very akin to the classic mid-century detective uh, that you might find in a Dashiell Hammett, or I was reading a lot of Ross McDonald novels at the time and that the, the Lou Archer stories where, you know, every, every story you need to plausibly believe that the narrator is going to be called in to solve two or three mysteries and allowed into all these interesting places that maybe most of us don't have entry into. And so I felt like, you know, in the mid 2000s and in, in Brooklyn, a lawyer might be the person who, who could find those entry points. Well, that's a perfect setup for talking about New York as a character in this novel, because not only do we get just immersed in the streets of New York and Brooklyn, where I haven't spent a ton of time, but, you know, just felt like I was there. But this is a novel that I, you know, I live in Southern California. It just couldn't take place here. I mean, you wouldn't pour yourself a cup of coffee and smoke a joint and walk around Laguna Beach and get tangled up in anything. You'd probably get arrested. So. <laughs> So, I mean, not only does it work as a, as you have said, kind of as this love letter to New York, but it's, it's a kind of novel that I think could only take place, I mean, maybe in a big city, you know, maybe it could take place in Chicago or, or Pittsburgh, I don't know, but it's uniquely and distinctly New York. And so I was hoping to talk a little bit about creating a sense of place that, that really does become another character in the novel and the, the places this guy is visiting and the 
the bars and the, even when he goes upstate, it, it just feels so very, <laughs> so very immersed in that place. And obviously it's a place you've spent a lot of time in. I talk to a lot of writers who almost need to get away from a place in order to see it objectively and write about it. But this novel feels more like you'd have to immerse yourself even deeper in the streets to write about it. And so anyway, talk about that creation of, of place. Yeah, it's funny that you said that about other writers. I, I've found in interviewing and talking with other writers that that's probably the more common situation that you feel you a little distance from a place to write about it. And, you know, I, I understand that and appreciate it, but I, I think you're right that with this particular novel, I needed this to be in New York and to be walking those streets every single day to kind of find that atmosphere. And in another sense, I was, I did have some distance in that I was writing about a period that was about 15 years gone at that point and allowing myself to feel a little nostalgic uh, about a Brooklyn or a New York City that had largely disappeared in the, in the intervening period, but I still remembered well. So to create that atmosphere, I mean, it was really just my version of New York when I moved there. I moved there for law school in my early 20s, but really I moved there because I wanted to be somewhere where I was surrounded by bookstores and movie theaters. And, you know, back then you didn't just have access to movies anywhere, anytime you wanted, you had to go out and find them and you did rely in large part. I mean, I guess you could have gone to Blockbuster, maybe you wouldn't have found everything you wanted. But if you really wanted to immerse yourself in a world of good, classic international movies, you needed to be in a big city and New York was, you know, as good as anywhere. I'm sure maybe LA would have been great for it. I don't, I don't know. And I, I, I lived in Paris for a while and that was also good for it. But New York really was a town full of bookstores and movie theaters. And that's the version of the city that I wanted and I got. So I lived way the hell out in Brooklyn uh, when I moved there and I went to law school way the hell uptown Manhattan and did not know quite how much distance was between those two. I had about an hour and a half ride on the subway every day <laughs> and often just kind of gave up on that ride and got off the subway and went walking around some new neighborhood. And I kind of explored the city for years and then got a chance to continue doing it. And it did seem like every other block back then was either had a bookstore or a movie theater. And so that was so much of my experience of the city that, that I, I found that when I, it came time to, to write an atmospheric crime novel, that was the atmosphere I wanted to experience, the one where you spent an afternoon walking around that joint and that drink poured into your coffee cup and you poked your head into a lot of used bookshops and chatted with the people inside and then maybe went to a movie with your friends later and then went over to a diner down the block to spend the next two hours debating what you'd just seen. And I, I've always kind of been intoxicated by that. Now, I kind of also thought of this, I wanted to write, I think what you'd call like a flaneur novel, you know, somebody who just kind of wanders around the streets observing. And in New York, it's pretty easy to do. And if you're going to write a crime novel, it kind of blurs the lines nicely with a classic detective too, who needs to get out on the streets and wear down the shoe leather and hit the pavement, you know? And so I, I wanted a, a novel where people just kind of wander around. And so that required a lot of my, my own wandering around. I've always, you know, just been somebody who takes the subway and walks everywhere in the city. And it was a real pleasure to get to do it and to think that, you know, this was, this was research for my novel. Now, when, we actually finalized this novel. Fortunately, I had an editor at Viking, Ibrahim Ahmad, who had also been in New York at that same time and had a similar devotion to some of the cultural offerings that were, that were around for us. And so we, we spent a lot of time pinning down movie times and making sure, I think I, we, <laughs> we rearranged 
absolutely everything in the plot of this novel to make sure that the characters could see Army of Shadows in 2006 at the film forum when it actually, you know, when it came out that season, because it was this strange repertory of Melville movies, the, the great French director and Army of Shadows was going to be shown for the first time in the US. And as odd as it sounds now, it really felt like everybody you saw in the city had either come from the film forum recently or was planning to go see one of the Melville shows. And so we were all briefly immersed in the world of like Cercle Rouge and like the Samurai and like all these great French noirs. And in fact, I remember I have a very distinct memory of my, my father came down to New York uh, from Massachusetts specifically to see Army of Shadows as well, because it really felt like this year, everybody wanted to see it. And my father was uh, a former spy and we spent the rest of the afternoon walking around New York, pretending we were part of the French resistance. And we gave each other code names and kind of popped into little cafes and came up with bizarre operations and dead drops to make. And it was just, you know, that's, that's the kind of New York that I'm writing about is where you kind of make these fictions for yourself and you see a great movie and allow it to, to permeate through your life for the rest of that night and get into some adventures. You have the coolest dad ever. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's such a particular time because it's it's post 9-11 and you, you don't really get a sense of that in this book. But it's, you know, the iPhone was invented in 2007. The financial crisis happened in 2008, which is all kind of around this. But you're right. It's such a unique sort of slice of time that you, I, you know, I think the characters in here still have blackberries. <laughs> and it's just that wonderful... Like something big is about to explode our world that we don't know about yet. You know, social media isn't really here yet. The iPhone isn't really here yet. There's a little of that loss of innocence after 9-11. So it's just this bubble of time that I think is, is really interesting. And I would say the time in this book is almost almost as important as the place in the book. And that's fun. I mean, I know that's when you were there, but. Oh, but it was a, yeah, it was a very deliberate decision too because as you said it was this period without social media without iphones and with a large looming world event on the horizon come 2008 i think there was a, a huge shift in new york and then the technology also changed the city very much i mean this was still a time when you know when you left the house i used to draw myself little maps and then just put them in my pocket because i needed to remember a few different locations that i was going to to visit that afternoon and where they stood in relation to a subway station. And that was the only way to do it. You draw yourself a little map and then put it in your pocket and head out for the day. And that's a very different world from even two or three years later. And also it was the time when a very specific neighborhood in Brooklyn, Williamsburg, which I think is now, at the time it already sort of become synonymous with hipsterdom and a very specific version of the new Brooklyn aesthetic that kind of swept the world briefly for a while, that neighborhood was moving on from being kind of an arts enclave with a lot of spillover from the old Lower East Side and different neighborhoods in Brooklyn to becoming a very moneyed neighborhood full of condos and, you know, high rises and wealth. And that was very much on the horizon. And I think Almost every good crime novel seems to come back to new layers of corruption, and it tends to come back to who owns the land. And in New York, that means who's building the buildings. And so 
this was in large part also a story of a changing neighborhood and the development of the William Bergen Greenpoint waterfront in Brooklyn. Well, and the big change in the book industry. So the the novel is really kind of around these antiquarian books. I think Amazon, I don't know where it was in 2007 or eight, but not where it is today. And just the meaning of books, finding rare books was was very different then. So that, yeah, all of that made made it for a great choice. Yeah, I think that book trade in particular, I mean, there are a lot of bookshops in New York still and the independent bookstore scene is great and thriving and wonderful to visit. But in say 2005, 2006, there were still sort of used bookshops or rare bookshops, but mostly let's say used everywhere in the city. And you could, you could very pleasantly spend an entire weekend just wandering amongst them, thumbing through stacks and looking for, looking for odd things, if that's what you wanted to do. And that is what I wanted to do. And it was also still had quite a lot of private libraries and these interesting little clubs and the the book trade was quite different back then uh, and if you wanted to immerse yourself in it you could find some some really interesting little mysteries around but you know in in this book the characters are largely they're sort of they're generally involved in the rare book trade but there's also a mystery that involves these old trial pamphlets i know as a former lawyer i'm sure that you came across them <laughs> in law school too but they were these kind of popular accounts written on flimsy paper of trials from mostly the 19th century. And, you know, they weren't meant to stand the test of time, these things. So most of them disintegrated or fell apart or were used, uh, you know, littered the, the floors of bars, but they were popular literature at the time. And, you know, there were a lot of them and people wanted the gory, nasty details of crimes and, you know, that this is how they got them. They didn't have line and they didn't have podcasts, but they had these little pamphlets and many of them survived to this day. And I think the sort of the best, some of the best collections in the world, you know, are kept in New York, in particular, the New York Historical Society, which is somewhere I spent a lot of time when I was working on this book, looking at these pamphlets, because it's incredible. You know, these historical documents, they're fascinating. And, you know, you can, the librarians at the Historical Society are great and you can put in a a request for a couple dozen of them and they'll bring you a box of history. And it really does feel like you're kind of thumbing through history. Columbia Law has got a great collection of them too. And uh, it's a really interesting glimpse into old America through its crime literature and what it told itself about murder and mayhem and what it meant in the 19th century. We'll be right back with more from Dwyer Murphy and An Honest Living in a Moment. You're listening to Writers on Writing. Another quick reminder to check out our Patreon page. If you're liking the show, if you've learned anything along the way in our over 24 years or so of thousands of episodes, any tips that may have inched you closer to publication, whatever it is, check out our page. In return, you will get weekly writing tips and prompts, as well as some other goodies. Visit www.patreon.com backslash writers on writing. By becoming a backer for just a few bucks or so a month, you can see all the levels up there and what we offer. Let's get back to it then with Dwyer Murphy talking about an honest living. So talk a little bit about the research for this book, because as you're talking, I'm thinking how easy it would get to go down some rabbit hole that, you know, kind of has nothing to do actually with the book, but is so interesting that you could fall into it for 
me for years, probably. Oh, I definitely um, did. I fell into some rabbit holes in the York Historical Society. I think there's probably other, you know, another version of this book where I wrote a hundred pages about some obscure crimes I was reading about in the pamphlets because it was fascinating. It was a very, very interesting and nice way to spend an afternoon. The New York Historical Society is just to the west of Central Park in this really beautiful old building. And you can go inside and spend a very fascinating afternoon thumbing through all of these books and then stumble out into the park and go for a long walk and meditate on all of the murders you've just been reading about. And the research was was a lot of fun for this. And then I also want, I, it's relatively minor part of the subplot, the, these trial pamphlets, you know, it's, they kind of, they're sort of a MacGuffin, I guess, in the Hitchcock tradition. They're not, that doesn't spoil anything in particular in the plot, but you don't, you don't need to, to know the exact history of the trial pamphlet trade to, to sort of enjoy the, the, mis- <laughs> the broader mystery going on. But I allowed myself to kind of study this stuff anyway, and to kind of lose myself in different periods of American history and the, the corruption therein. And it, it was a lot of fun. And I also spent a good time in the law library, especially at Columbia, uh, where I'd gone to school. So I was able to kind of go up there still and the law librarians there are just incredible. And, you know, I didn't necessarily tell anybody what I was working on, but I, I had this incredible trove of legal history at my disposal. And it was, it was a real gift in New York is a, a great city for that to just, you can find history just about anywhere. And a lot of this, as I said, was really just kind of walking around or going through old time out in New York's or trying to find the old, like the, you know, used to go out to the, a news kiosk and buy either time out New York or some other arts pamphlets that would tell you everything that was going on that week. And so, you know, what was, what was playing at different clubs around town or, you know, what, what shows were happening, what, what movies I, I largely was buying them to find out, you know, when the, when the next repertory was playing and at what theater, I, I think I probably went to like, used to go to movies all the time. No, I don't, I haven't been to a movie in years now somehow, but it was the most important part of my week and my social life was going to the movies. So I used to go out and buy all these old pamphlets. And so when I was writing the novel, I, I tracked down a lot of those old, you know, circa 2005 pamphlets about what was going on in New York. And that kind of allowed me to remember the restaurants, the bars, the clubs, all these places that we used to go and to kind of write my own loving parodied versions of some of these ridiculous places and the, the music you were listening to. And, uh, you know, one of the, one of the things that the characters get into in the novel is also the, the cabaret laws that existed in New York for a long time, which were these really restrictive rules about who, what kind of music could be played in a bar and especially about dancing. And I think a lot of those cabaret laws were designed to sort of, oppress black and Latin neighborhoods in New York and to make sure that most of these places didn't have licenses for dancing. There was very few places in New York. So these laws were handed down through decades. They were recently reformed, but handed down through decades and used to make sure that you couldn't dance many places in New York. Uh, and in my novel, because this is something that weighed on me, my characters are constantly thinking about the cabaret laws and being a little pissed off that they can't dance certain places and in it anyway and then getting getting into trouble for it but you could you could be in a a little brazilian restaurant that wanted to play some samba and it's hard to not want to get up and dance but if you do they can get fined and there used to be these like plain clothes policemen out trying to to catch restaurants who were having illicit dancing going on and it was 
a bizarre little underbelly of New York, but uh, I wanted to kind of recreate some of that period. And so a lot of the research is going back to, to find out what, what type of music was playing at a specific restaurant in 2005 and where it stood in connection to a movie theater or a bookstore that the characters might want to visit after. I love that you can walk around and smoke a joint, but you can't dance somewhere. That distinguishes <laughs> know, right? New York from other places. Yeah, and dancing was, I don't know, it was an important part of it. It was. Yeah, of course. So there's this wonderful character, Anna Riddick, who I don't think gives too much away to say, I, I don't know if she's unreliable. She She's a little mysterious. And so talk a bit about getting to know your, my, she isn't really a minor character, but these these ancillary characters, who gave you, perhaps her, but who gave you problems working with sort of sort of unreliable characters that we don't you know, totally understand everything that's making them tick. Some of these other people that I'd love to talk about. Yeah, so one, I just kind of love the tradition in a crime novel or detective novels where are the, there are these strong secondary characters and a lot of the fun of the novel is just watching your detective go around and talk with them. So it was important to me to make these characters feel whole and interesting and, you know, lively in their own rights and kind of people who were worth going around and spending some time with. So Anna Reddick is probably the, the second character in this novel, but in large part drives a lot of the action and her perspective kind of permeates everything. And our narrator begins to kind of absorb a lot of her perspective on things, but she's essentially a disillusioned novelist, a kind of celebrated literary prodigy who has become disillusioned with her life of letters and uh, minor art celebrity in New York and really wants to kind of glom onto a mystery herself and get lost in something else. Because on the one hand, she's the catalyzing person that it is her husband who has disappeared and the narrator and she are going off in search of this lost husband bookseller. But I think in large part, she's a writer, a sort of disillusioned literary writer who wants to wants to have something else in her life that kind of gets her out into the world. It was a joy to kind of create her and get to know her. And in large, I was kind of involved in the literary world in New York for a very long time. And so I was able to kind of draw on people I knew and my own misgivings and disillusionments uh, to kind of create some of her. And then the other kind of major character who's involved in this adventure is a Venezuelan poet who has named himself Ulysses Lima, who's of course a, a character from the Bolaño, but he, Ulysses had adopted that name when he came to the US and then later Bolaño became popular and Ulysses is a little pissed off about it because now the name just sort of sounds stupid, but he's kept it anyway. And he's off on these adventures with our narrator and with Anna Reddick. And I think probably, you know, like a lot of writers, I give pieces of myself to these characters. But then I think my wife, who's a Venezuelan lawyer and is a lot more passionate and intelligent and ready to kind of get into rumbles and fights wherever, <laughs> wherever she might need to. She's she she's always ready to ready to go out and uh, have an adventure. Uh, I, I allow pieces of my wife to kind of lead into these characters and give give them some of her her backstory and some of her spirit as well. So. I'm sure that all of the characters are just, you know, they've drawn pieces from people I know. And, but whenever I, I need a bit of passion, I probably bring my wife into it. She's the sort of the most passionate person I'll ever meet. And also the most passionate reader. She kind of connects to characters and books in a way that I don't know that I ever could I really admire that. So I, I want to, you know, if this is going to be a novel about 
people who feel passionate about books. I needed to bring some of her into it. I'd love to talk a little bit about, I've been thinking a lot about creating suspense versus frustrating the reader and how to maintain that balance just in regular literary fiction. So crime, you know, that's the whole game in crime novels is to have the reader discovering things without and disseminating information when they need it, keeping them reading and not keep, not getting them frustrated. And I never once felt the least bit of frustration in this, but I have recently <laughs> been feeling frustration in some other things I've been reading. So I'd love to unpack any rules you can say for how you do that, how you disseminate information at the right times, how you keep readers reading, and how you avoid frustration? <laughs> when you said that in the intro, I was immediately gripped. That's a really interesting frame and question, a way to come at fiction. Now, I guess from my writing style, I think I always imagine that I'm sitting down at a table across from somebody, usually in a bar, telling them a story. And when you're telling somebody a story, you know, you have to be concerned about their interest. If you're not, then you're probably just a jerk and not worth talking to. But you have to know that you're interested, <laughs> that you're keeping your audience interested. And that isn't always about advancing the plot. In fact, I think most of the time it's not. It's about the way you tell the story, how you bring your own strange perspective into that story and keep things witty and amusing. I know we were talking about this as, you know, I think it probably sounds and is a detective novel, but I wanted it to be kind of, I want it to be fun and to be funny. And that's probably the guiding force behind my writing style is that I want to bring a piece of wit or insight into every line and every page or else the person who's sitting across from me at the table in that bar is going to become bored. And I can't imagine anything worse than just sitting there and boring somebody, right? So I, to me, it's about keeping that person interested and trying to remember to kind of have a real voice to the, to things as I go along. Now, in terms of, I guess, rules for it, I, this is something that I've been kind of thinking about lately. And there was always this, the great Chandler line about like, when you don't know what else to do, I want to say it's Chandler. Now, as I'm saying it out loud, I'm wondering if it was Hammett, but you know, one, one of them, when you don't know what else to do, you kind of have a, a man walk into the room with a gun. Now, I'm not going to do that in my own fiction. I don't really, I don't think I have any guns in my fiction. It's not necessarily the life I'm creating here. So I, in my other job, I, I, I work at this website that is dedicated to crime fiction. And one of the things we have is an interview series between authors where they kind of talk shop. Now, these great writers, Eli Craner and Megan Abbott had a conversation for us uh, where they were talking about noir and atmospherics and lots of great things. And one of the things that Megan Abbott said was that she uh, to kind of take a spin off of that old adage. And whenever you don't know what else to do with your plot, have something weird happen. And I think that that is a guiding force for a lot of noir. Maybe crime fiction sometimes gets a bad rap as though it's, you know, like just an A to B to C mystery that needs to be solved. But I think a lot of good crime fiction, really bizarre and serendipitous things are constantly happening in those kind of quiet, odd, brilliant little moments are the thing that makes it fun to write and also hopefully for the reader makes it fun to navigate through. And so I, I can't really imagine writing a straight mystery necessarily. Uh, to me, there has to be surprising moments along the way that kind of have nothing to do with the central plot and everything to do with the characters and lives as they're lived. 
Right. I mean, I think a lot of the driving force of of good fiction is you care more about the characters than you care about what happens next. And of course, something has to happen next. But if it's character driven, it's way more interesting than if it's external, you know, this not happen driven. And I was thinking about if it's an if it's an issue of the reader has to know as much or more as the character knows. And if the character knows more than the reader and is just obfuscating or playing coy, I think that's where the frustration comes in. So here we are, you know, we're just locked arm in arm with our narrator because we're in first person and first person, I think is hard too. We can talk about that in a minute, maybe, but we're discovering things alongside him. And when he learns something, we learn something. So it's not, I feel like if we were in, one of the other characters' heads where they obviously know more than we do, we'd be frustrated. I don't know if that's that's an easy kind of rule to follow for writers that the the reader has to be as smart or slightly smarter than the character that they're following. I think that's yeah, I think that there's something to that. And for me, you know, my narrator is working is yeah, he's trying to solve a mystery and is constantly <laughs> baffled by the things happening around him. And I don't know what the, I don't know what the story would look like if it was all figured out, but I would I think that it would probably be a little boring, right? And so I, you know, there is that sense of that's part of what's invigorating about a mystery is not necessarily feeling like you have a chance to solve it. I don't think that's kind of like the traditional fair play mystery that, you know, was largely associated with British writers in the golden age. And those mysteries are a lot of fun in their own right. But what I would say for, you know, a, a contemporary crime novel, you still want to bring in some of that, that vicarious thrill of feeling like you're there in the moment, discovering things as the narrator does while still, you know, the narr- there can still be a bit of ironic distance, I guess, uh, there. The reader in my, in my novel, at least I think, the reader is probably laughing at the narrator a lot and kind of uh, has that has that advantage over him. And, you know, he knows he's a bit ridiculous too. So I guess he's aware of that, but uh, I think probably the reader is maybe more so, but there are those, those, those levels of distance. And I think you're right that it's important to keep, you know, the omniscient narrator who's merely, you know, deigning to tell you this story doesn't seem quite as interesting to me. Yeah. So on the red herrings and the MacGuffins that, that you have embedded in here, like, are those surprises to you as you're writing? How much surprise do you allow yourself or where do you discover these things along the way? Or, or are they pretty carefully planned out before you start writing it? No, you'd think as former lawyers, we should be, you know, really good. I, I said it to, at, the, at the top here that I love a good outline. That doesn't necessarily mean I can write one when it comes to fiction. So I think, <laughs> no, I, the way I've, tended to work is I I have my laptop in front of me and then beside me I keep a little Spirodia notebook that's graph paper and full of you know what looks like lunatic scribblings on it and before I start a scene I kind of make a lot of notes in longhand about what what I want from that scene and usually it's more of the atmospherics of that scene and what needs to what it needs to feel like and then I just kind of jump in and start writing, but in terms of broader structure to the overall novel, I don't necessarily where it's go where know where it's going or what is going to be a false clue and what will turn out to be significant later. So there's a lot of problem solving along the way, and you're trying to figure out how to reconcile all these things you've done before, which can probably, you know, it can get you tied up a little bit, but it's also, I think, brings a spirit of fun into it for the writer and 
that hopefully translates to the reader's experience too and helps create what you were talking about before of that that feeling like you're there in the moment solving all of this with with the narrator i think that a lot of that feeling is created because you really are there with the writer solving it too that it's you know, a lot of nothing, nothing in this novel was preordained or known ahead of time. It was more a matter of finding where the events and the characters would take you next and allowing, allowing their predicaments to kind of guide the action rather than having it all be foretold. And do you force yourself to write all the way to the end and then go back and revise it a thousand times after that or do you stop and make sure all the loose ends are tied up before you move on to the next page well this was this was my first novel and since i've i've worked on uh, i i'm just about tied uh, just about done on the revisions for the second novel which will come out next summer and then a, another novel beyond that so hopefully my, my system has changed and gotten a little better. But when I was doing writing this novel, I was going back and constantly revising and tinkering with things. And I think it became a more frustrating than necessary experience. But now I guess I would, I would recommend, even in a crime novel where things need to fit together, I would recommend pushing through to the end and trying to then go back and change things rather than endlessly tinkering and trying to calibrate everything so that it's going to make sense when you finish the first time. I talk to a lot of writers who they write it all the way through and then they outline it after after it's done. Then they're like, OK, now I can kind of see the outline and then I can tighten things up where where it's falling apart, where the outline is falling apart. That's so a great idea. The- I'm, I'm going to take that. This is, your podcast is very useful. I've always found so <laughs> some good tips from it, but that is that's an excellent system. So I'm going to I'm going to make a note of that. Thank you. And so you were. You did not get your MFA, but you did. You are the editor in chief of Crime Read, so I know you read a ton of crime fiction. But it sounds like your writing is almost equally informed by movies as it is by literature. And I and I'm wondering, you know, I, I talk to a lot of writers. I'm like, do you do you read into the genre you're writing, or does that kind of screw you up? But it sounds like you're one of those who who's reading all over your genre to get advice and, and technique. Uh, do you do you feel like movies and, and reading are the best sort of MFA program you could get for, for writing crime fiction? Yeah, I would say so. I, I'm i lucky in that my day job is essentially to read crime fiction all day long. It's a great job. Uh, <laughs> so I recommend that if I, I don't know too much about MFA programs. I never, I wasn't necessarily interested in going that route and nor could I afford it necessarily. Once I had, once I had thrown myself into the law school avenue, but it seemed a reasonable alternative to me. But yeah, I, I, I guess I would, I would say that I was able to sort of get my education in literature generally and crime fiction in particular at libraries and bookstores and going to the movies. And it's a, it's a nice racket if you can get it, you know, and if, if you can make that into your day job, I particularly recommend it, but I was, uh, that's, there probably are too many jobs out there and, you know, hopefully nobody comes for mine, but I'll, I'll be ready to defend it. Cause it is a, it's a pleasure to get to, to read crime fiction all day long and to think about it and write about it and engage with it and to, to get to know all of the writers working in the space. Cause it's an exciting time for crime fiction too. I do think that the world of crime fiction has gotten a lot more varied and interesting in recent years. And I, I'm, I'm sure that there were vibrant scenes in the past, you know, it maybe every period feels like you, you're in a golden period for it, but it does feel to me that like today's crime fiction is 
taking the, the traditional formulas in really interesting ways and kind of doing these really smart things while still kind of honoring the, the, the tradition that we all love. Technology seems like it would be so hard for crime fiction, you know, that it'd be way easier to be a crime fiction writer back in the 50s before DNA and <laughs> yeah, all the know, you know, I, databases. And I'm like, it's a nightmare now. Yeah, yeah I'm trying to think of- I mean, that's probably part of why I set this novel in 2005. As you mentioned before, I don't know. An iPhone and social media probably solves a lot of it. But a lot of writers are doing really cool things with, you know, the world of collective online crime solvers and technology. And they really understand uh, these communities uh, and online groups uh, in, a, in a way that they're able to bring them to fiction and do something really interesting with not something that I can imagine diving into myself, but probably just because I'm not very, I'm not very good with technology myself, which is not something I should, you know, admit since my, my job is to run a website, but I am <laughs> not, not so great with technology and I don't incorporate a lot of it into my everyday life beyond making sure that I have like the streaming services so I can watch my movies. And beyond that, I don't, I don't have a lot. So I, I don't work it into my fiction too much, but it is a, I mean, that's, a huge and interesting challenge for a lot of contemporary crime writers is what do you do with iPhones? Cause they, they really can solve and undercut a lot of mysteries. But to me, I, I guess maybe I just continue to lead my life in a way that, that puts some of that to the side and hopefully allows for some other mysteries to work their way in. So since you're immersed in the, uh, in the genre, are there crime writers that people should have their eye on that aren't necessarily the, the classic ones, but none, nonetheless, very good ones. Oh God, yeah. Just <laughs> from the summer, I could, I could probably you know talk about hundreds or something. I think like this month, Jennifer Hillier has got a great novel coming out. Rachel Housel Hall, a California writer that you might know, they've got great novels coming out this July. Over the the summer, Adrian McKinty's got this really great thriller that I think is probably on a lot of people's bookshelves. Uh, Megan Miranda is an amazing writer who really has kind of mastered this psychological thriller form. And her book comes out, I think, the same week as mine. I'll be doing some events in New York with Ed Lin, who writes this series of like Taipei and the Chinatown mysteries that are really incredible. It's such a vibrant scene. I'm just kind of crazily throwing names at you here, yeah, but it really, it. it really is this amazing world right now that, you know, I, I, I don't know why exactly crime fiction draws in so of so many of us, but it's, I guess it's exciting to feel like it is a popular and meaningful form that you can still put a lot of yourself and a lot of art into and get something out of. I know, like I mentioned Walter Mosley before, and he's still probably for a lot of us kind of the, the guiding force to show what crime fiction can do and what it can be, right? And uh, he was able to craft all of these incredible novels over the year that not only have something to say about society and how it has evolved, but I think more importantly have created these incredibly well-rounded, profound characters that become a part of your life. And I think crime fiction is really, really good at that, creating characters with depth and nuance who feel like they work their way into your life and become almost, you know, friends or acquaintances of yours and you're you're interested in their various adventures. 
Well, and it is really interesting to think about why crime fiction is so hot right now. And I feel like, A, it's a great escape from the the very dark reality that we're living through. And, you know, I feel like we're all surrounded by so much crime all day long that almost seems senseless and, and crazy that it, it almost puts this container around crime that makes sense almost. And it's pleasurable to see crime that that has meaning behind it when, I, I don't know, I'm trying to make sense of it, yeah, but I agree. No, I think, well, I think that's like probably what a lot of people especially enjoy in like TV series too. There are the, those crime shows that you come back to again and again, because something is solved at the end of it. And maybe some of the world is put to right. But I would yes, say that yeah. for a lot of, a lot of contemporary crime fiction, some of it is about, you know, social insights and insights into some of the worst things that are happening in our societies. And, you know, through a page turner, you can still get insight into those broader systemic issues that we feel happening around us all the time. And then maybe there's another type of crime novel where the mystery and the ambiguity is the point and nothing gets solved. And that is fine, that that is also part of our everyday existence. I would say that probably... I, I'm drawn to all of those. And there are really great people working in all of those different types of crime fiction. So I think maybe part of the appeal too is that there are crime fiction is no longer really dominated by one type of novel. It's not just about writing your version of an Agatha Christie whodunit. Those are great. And I, we can all find, uh, I think, a lot of pleasure in reading those. But there are also different types of crime novels being written by very different types of writers that you know they are still concerned with your entertainment as a reader and making sure that you are brought into the story in a meaningful and pleasurable way but also having something something bigger to say whatever that might be and you know that's something that you know a lot of classic crime novels also do that too i feel like Reading an old Ross MacDonald novel gives you much the same feeling as reading a Walter Mosley novel. And that that is, you know, that's my experience in Southern California. I'm sure yours is very different, but the, I get yeah. most of mine through like reading, I don't know, you know, Mosley, Ross MacDonald or Steph Cha or, you know, these great contemporary California crime writers. But I, I like to visit, visit your state through crime novels because you've got such a great tradition and, you know, a, a great modern tradition too. That's how I feel about New York too. Yeah. It's fun to, exactly. fun to travel. Any uh, last minute words of advice now that you've, you've come through the first one is you're, you're apparently through the second one. And uh, we talked a little bit about what you learned along the way and what you might do different, but any advice you can give, I'd, I'd love to hear. I'm taking your advice. I'm going to write one <laughs> then outline after that. <laughs> uh, I guess my, my advice for people who want to write a crime novel is to not be overly concerned with wrapping up everything with a bow because I don't think that readers will demand it and you'll allow yourself more of those moments of serendipity along the way and allow those to be some of your, you know, your guiding forces rather than feeling like you need to, to write an airtight mystery. I don't know, maybe some, a lot of people love airtight mysteries. It's not my particular passion, but I hope that if people are coming to crime fiction, they feel like there is no one particular mold that needs to be conformed to or a formula that has to be adopted that look around you and find some of the 
the mysteries or crimes or injustices that plague your own life and find a way to bring those onto the page. And then you write it all the way through and you outline it afterwards and it'll make sense if it needs to. And so you're going to be doing a bunch of events. Tell us the best ways to, to follow you and find out if you're doing online events, how people can, can tune in. That's a great question. Uh, <laughs> at some point very soon, I'll put them out there on probably on social media. If you find me, I guess, on Twitter at Dwyer Murphy, but Viking Books, will, who's the publisher of this book, will also be putting out a schedule. But yeah, on the, the week this book comes out on July 26th, and I'll be in New York all that week doing events at the Mysterious Bookshop or the Center for Fiction, all of my, my great New York City institutions. Uh, I'll be there and then I'll be doing virtual events all across the country too at stores because I just love bookstores so much. I can't get enough of them. So I will be traveling around virtually around the country to, to talk with bookshops and people who love bookshops. Hopefully I'll see some people there. Dwyer Murphy, the book is An Honest Living. It's out July 26th by Viking. Thanks so much for taking the time and congratulations. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. Take care. That was Dwyer Murphy. The book is An Honest Living. It's out and available on July 26th, published by Viking. In addition to our Patreon page, you can also visit our websites. Barbara's is barbarademarcobarrett.com, also found at penonfire.com. Mine is Marie Stone, M-A-R-R-I-E stone.com. You can always subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, and Stitcher. As always, our fantastic music and sound design was provided by Travis Barrett. You can find him at travisbarrett.mykajabi.com. That's all the time we have for today. Tune in next week, and thanks so much for joining me. Have a great day.